Right, last week, we did the resurrection of Lazarus. It's in John chapter 11. A little bit of context for that. Jesus was 110 miles away from Jerusalem. He gets word that his friend Lazarus is really ill. He waits uh, for a period of time. He then goes and raises Lazarus from the dead. This is a foretaste of what he was going to do during this holy week. Because what he does is he's walking into certain danger by going to Jerusalem. His disciples, one of them, Thomas, says, look, don't go. They'll try and kill you if you go near Jerusalem. And Thomas eventually relents and says, look, I will go with you. Let's die with you if you have to go. And what we see is Jesus, in effect, laying down his life, putting his life in grave danger to save his friend. And that's a foretaste of the resurrection of Christ, which we celebrate at Easter. We did not have a Good Friday service this year. So I'm going to talk about the crucifixion first. You cannot have life-changing, life-saving good news without knowing what we've been saved from. So the first half of this message, I'm going to speak about the reality of the crucifixion of Jesus. I'm going to look at Mark 15 and go through a couple of points on that. Then, for the second half of the message, the joyful, happy resurrection bit, we're going to look at John 20, specifically, again, Thomas, doubting Thomas, and then how he saw the resurrected Christ and what that did for him. We'll look at applications in each of our lives for that. Before I go into teaching, I'd like to ask God to bless it, so we bow your heads as I pray. Lord God, thank you that there is enough in the Bible that we can be saved. Lord, you know what's happening in our lives. Lord, give us uh, the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the heart to desire to change, Lord. And as I teach, Father, help me to get out of the way, and may you as Holy Spirit get in the way. Lord, prompting us, guiding us on what you'd like to apply to our lives, Lord. Otherwise, we're just listening. But Lord, this is a resurrected life that you call us to, and it looks like a transformed life too. So help us be transformed today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We have a resource on our webpage. Uh, It's antiochchicago.com. If you click on resources, you'll see a, a resource called Right Now Media. It literally has hundreds and hundreds of videos of really good teachers, which are free. You can look at them. Some people are doing life groups in relation to them. There's one teaching by Francis Chan on the Gospel of Mark. And in the last chapters, he's gone through the Gospel of Mark. Francis Chan gives this explanation on why he was so nervous about doing a teaching on the Gospel of Mark. And he said it's kind of like singing along to an Adele song. Adele has an amazing voice. And if you sing along to that, in some way kind of detracts from her voice and listening to it. Um, I am going to read from Mark 15. I am not going to go into much explanation until after I've read the crucifixion of Christ. God does not need me to add to the narrative of the crucifixion. Now, I'll explain a little bit afterwards, but there's going to be five minutes where I'm literally just going to read Scripture to you. That would happen in the early church. It would happen in synagogues. It's not something we're overly used to. In America, we typically have the pastor comes up, gives us a one-minute summary, and then kind of gets into the message. The message is Scripture. And so I want to read Scripture for us today. As I'm reading the crucifixion of Jesus from Mark 15, listen out for how Jesus is mocked. 
So Jesus is the king of the universe, the highest high. He is reigning at the moment. He's worthy of all honor. And on behalf of each one of us, in fact, on behalf of the whole world, he's willing to take great shame and scorn. And he's willing to do that for each one of us. Now, some people will say, if it was only you, Jesus would have done it for you. The reality is, Jesus' death um, and his payment for sins is so infinitely worthwhile. It could never be for just one person. But know that he has done it for you too, as you listen uh, to some of the mocking that happens. So Mark 15, Jesus is before Pilate. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it's a custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then uh, with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. 
Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, was with who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. As you were listening to the mocking of Christ, did anyone notice that what they were actually saying was in fact true? The irony is they're mocking him, saying, King of the Jews, you who are going to tear down this temple and raise it up again in three days, you can save others, but you can't save yourself. They were speaking truth over Jesus. They didn't intend it for that. They meant it to be barbed and humiliating, like a verbal spitting upon. But we're going to just look now at why it was true. First of all, Jesus, King of the Jews, verse 18 and verse 26. Uh, This is the soldiers in verse 18. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And then, as we see about Jesus being crucified, it says in verse 26, the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Why Pilate was so confused with the religious leader's treatment of Jesus was that why would they do that to a king? More importantly, why would a king allow that to happen to himself? 
Now, you look at the royal family in England, they don't actually have much power. But historically, if you were a king, if you were a royal family, whether it was 2,000 years ago or present day, you would use your power to build your own kingdom around you. You have different people serving you. And yet here was the king of the Jews who said he was the king of the Jews, and he's dying on a cross. The king, the one that has the most highest honor in a nation, was the lowest of the low. It made no sense for Pilate. It made no sense for the disciples. The king of the Jews was entirely correct. Second one, it says, uh, you you said you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Now, Jesus in his ministry spoke through lots of imagery. With the uh, advantage of 2020 hindsight, we now understand through Scripture that when Jesus spoke of the temple, that was God's dwelling place. He was speaking of himself. So when Jesus' body was buried in the ground, that was the temple being knocked down. And then in three days it being raised up again. That was a foretell of the resurrection. Now he had given a load of hints. They just had the Last Supper the night before, and he, he gave the communion to them. And he says, giving them communion, it says in the Gospel of Matthew, it says, here is my body uh, broken for many. Here's the blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's been very clear about what his purpose was. Three separate places in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 8, 31 to 32. The first time he gives them a clear explanation that he was going to die. Uh, Verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And they must be killed and after three days raise again. Then in chapter 9 of Mark, verse 30 to 31 again, it's predicting his death a second time. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And the third time, this is even before the Last Supper, uh, Jesus says this. It's Mark 10, verses 32 to 34. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen. We are going up to Jerusalem. He said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. What we now know with the benefit of hindsight a worldly king, you would try and win their favor. You try and get into their presence in some way, serve them. We now know it's the most perfect representation of God. God who is love, when he was hanging on that cross. God, the highest of the highs, the full measure of his love, 
was willing to die on the cross. So as he's out there, outstretched, people mocking him, spitting upon him, gambling for his clothes, it is the full and perfect picture of who God is. This unconditional love. So often we think of maybe a God being some kind of angry, distant being. In every other religion, you have to work your way towards God. Different things to win his favor. It's only through the revelation of Jesus Christ that we know that God himself came down to us. And he died on our behalf. So when it says king of the Jews, there measured is God in his fullness of love. At the time... People thought he was helpless, kind of a a fool. He'd been proved a, a scam. But we now know that was God's love represented for us. That moves into the third insult, which in one way is true, and in another way is not true. Uh, The others say this about Jesus. It's verse 31. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. This is actually true. For Jesus to save others, he actually has to die. He knows that the punishment for sin is death. He is outraged at the effects of sin. He's outraged that Lazarus is dying and the pain that it causes. He would look at the situation in Sri Lanka and be outraged at what is happening. And yet, at the same time, there is a tender resilience to see it through fully. And Jesus will tell his disciples, lots of points up to this point in Jerusalem, if you love me, you will obey me. Christ is a perfect representation of God the love of a father to a son and a son to a father. Physically, he could really easily get down from there. It wouldn't take much for him to do that. But he is morally obligated to stay up there because he is perfect love. To do anything else would not be perfect love. Now, when he's in the desert and he's fasting for 40 days, I remember reading some of that text thinking, wow, he had really great resilience to not just want to turn stones into bread. Think of the resilience he had on that cross when everyone around him was mocking him and insulting him not to come down there. In a different gospel account, it says that one of the thieves on the cross, this account shows that they were both mocking Christ. The other one account says, he says, remember me. That's obviously after the mocking be so easy for Jesus to say, I remember you. But instead, he goes, surely you'll be with me forever. And so there's this resilience. There's a commitment to people. There's a commitment to you and I. There's a commitment to us that Jesus was going to see this through. No matter the very worst that the devil threw at Jesus, utterly bringing him great shame. And this isn't an honor-shame culture. It's hard for us to really comprehend how humiliating a death this was. But the devil did his worst, and Jesus willingly took it. Physically, he could have got down, but being perfect 
love, being the embodiment of perfect love. He was morally obligated not to. So when they say he saved others but cannot save himself, that's true. Now, he could have saved himself physically, but he will not save himself. The best example I can give, if um, a couple are very, very happily married, and one time the spouse, the wife, is off somewhere, and a very flirtatious man comes up to her, starts chatting to her. Now, she could cut that conversation off, probably does. Like, her love for her husband is not going to be changed by that. But there is still that rejection of the flirty behavior. So Christ could have got down, but he cannot. He owes it to people. He owes it to his very identity not to come down. Now, Peter described this later on. He said, Christ died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, once for all, to bring you to God. Jesus himself says it, that he's giving his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus died on the cross, that was the once for all payment of all sins. It means forgiveness is full and final and forever. Whatever you have done in your past, whatever we may be doing in our present, whatever we're going to do in the future that may fall short of God's perfect standard, if we've put our faith and trust in Jesus, that does not define us. We are not defined by our darkness. We are not defined by our weaknesses. We are not defined by our shortcomings. We are defined by God's perfect love as revealed in Jesus. And to give you a couple of moments of reflection, I want you to reflect, is there an area of your life where Jesus is still on the cross? That means, is there an area of life where you kind of have given up? You feel really deeply disappointed in God. The disciples were looking at the cross thinking, well, I, I must have been wrong. And I'll go into that in a minute. But is there an area of your life where you have given up hope? or being able to change a circumstance, or being able to change a situation. Give you a moment just to reflect on that before I pray over it. Father God, with whatever's coming to mind in each of the people's uh, minds here, Father, I pray that you'll let them know that that is not the final say on the situation, that you have the final say, that you work all things for the good of those that love you. As we looked at uh, the despair that must have felt with Christ on the cross, the humiliation, that was not going to be the final say as to who you are either, God. So I, pr I pray that we surrender whatever it is that's weighing on us, whatever it is that we've given up hope for, we surrender that to you. You may bring a change, you may not, but we say the change is now up to you. It's not a burden that we can carry anymore, that there is resurrection power. And if it is your will, and I pray that it is, that you bring a great change to this situation in your son's name. Amen. I'm going to go into John 20 now. So we looked at Mark 15, that the irony is the mocking was actually true. 
John 20. Lovely Thomas, doubting Thomas. Probably the most fairest representation of how we would have responded if we were there. I'm going to look at uh, Thomas's view of the resurrection and what it means for us and how we can respond to it. On the 20th of January, we did a series, uh, it's called Apologetics, where you look at people's uh, objections that they have to the Christian faith. On the 20th of January, we looked at the evidence for the Christian faith, looked at the trustworthiness of the Gospels, uh, we looked at the resurrection as well. So if you want further proof or some information about the resurrection, I recommend you go online and follow it there. That is not what I'm going to be teaching today. I'm going to be teaching about how Thomas doubted, then how it changed, and how he uh, responded differently and what that means for us. So the context is, Thomas, before going with Jesus to raise Lazarus, knows that he's walking into danger and says, let's go with him. Let's be willing to die ourselves. My guess is none of the disciples had any idea that Jesus was actually going to die. We see lots of times Jesus spoke in figurative language, in parables. Uh, We've got 20-20 vision. We can understand what it means. But I'm sure they were thinking, I guess this is going to make sense at some point. And the evidence that they didn't really expect him to die is what they do after Jesus has been crucified to when he next shows himself to them on Sunday. They are back in the upper room, terrified for their lives, full of despair and gloom, waiting for the knock on the door of the Jewish authorities, saying, weren't you with him? They were not singing and dancing, saying, "Woo! I can't wait till Sunday. They were not expecting him to have died. Thomas gave, Jesus says, if you follow me, you need to lose your old life. Thomas has given his old life away, and he's chosen to follow Jesus. He's followed Jesus into Jerusalem. This is the Messiah. This was the guy that entered in on Palm Sunday, king of the Jews. This is the guy that's going to get rid of all of the oppression. He's going to vanquish the enemies of the Jewish people. He most likely thought the occupying Roman force. He was not expecting Jesus to die. Now, we know that Jesus died to vanquish death, the real enemy of God's people. But at the time, Thomas and the other disciples did not know that. So Thomas is deeply disappointed. He's put all of his faith and trust in this one person. And then God, or this one person, does not meet his expectations at all. And he's devastated, probably much more hurt than humiliated. This is someone who loved him, who he thought the highest things of, just being utterly rejected and despised, and killed. But we know earlier on in the day, on Easter Sunday, two women go to the tomb, and an angel meets them and says, he is risen. And they go running to tell a couple of the apostles, and they meet Peter and John. This sounds a bit too good to be true for them, so they go running back to the tomb. They themselves see that there is an empty tomb. 
Where the other disciples have been hiding out in fear and despair and gloom, the upper room where that last supper was, they go running back. And they're sharing the story of Jesus, how he's uh, spoken to them on the road to Emmaus, reveals himself to them. And then Jesus just appears into the room. Doesn't say he used the door, just suddenly, miraculously, he was among them. And he says, peace be with you. And he shows them that he has power over death. There were two disciples, two apostles who were not in that room. Judas was one of them. When he realized the implications of what he had done for Jesus, he hanged himself. The other person who wasn't there was Thomas. Doesn't give us a reason, it just says he was absent. Now, they would have relayed that message to him. We pick up the text. It's John 20, verses 24 to 31. This is a week later. So a week from after today, 2019 years ago. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Listen out for this disappointment and hurt, how he actually wants tangible proof before he's suckered in again. It says here, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See, my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my sight. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Thomas is a doubting skeptic. There are many, many reasons why people doubt Jesus in our own lives. His was based on hurt and disappointment. He had given his all, and it did not turn out as he expected. So often people say, let's walk by faith. Sometimes When people are walking by faith, it means almost like being an ostrich. Let's ignore all of the reality and keep stepping out there. Jesus never asks us to do that with a Christian faith. He wasn't even asking Thomas. Thomas says, I need concrete proof before I'm believing this again. He was deeply hurt. Probably deeply hurt to have been absent as well. He represents us in so many ways. He he just didn't want to be hurt anymore. You know, when you forgive someone, it takes a while to really want to embrace them again. Thomas had given his all to Christ, and it did not turn out as he expected. He's like, I can't take any more pain. I can't take this if it's not true. I don't want to be gullible anymore. Now, every couple of years, you'll get two films released that are almost identical in Hollywood, and apparently screenwriters, it's just coincidental. About 10 years ago, there were two films that were released at the same time, The Illusionist with Edward Norton and The Prestige with Christian Bale. They are both about illusionists 
and doing kind of trickery. And as the film ends, you see actually how they were doing it. And the prestige, it's got this great kind of storyline. But right at the end, you're wondering, how has this person actually done all of these magic tricks? And then Christian Bale comes out as two people. It was like a twin. And all along, people had just thought it was one person. And he kept his twin's identity secret. Thomas here does not want someone vaguely looking like Jesus, saying, yes, it's me. There were many people that claimed to be the Messiah. He wants tangible proof, and I don't blame him. So he's a disappointed skeptic. A week later, Christ enters the room, says, peace be with you. And as Thomas puts his hands in the holes which was caused by the crucifixion, his hand in the side where the spear pierced Jesus and it did water and blood to prove that Jesus was dead. Thomas's response is what our response should be when we hear the gospel. It's one of astonishment, almost like disbelief, like astonishment and amazement. He says this, my Lord and my God. The word my is so, so important. What he knew with Jesus, what he had fallen in love with, was a God who loved him, who came and was among them. And he realizes that the resurrected Jesus is still that same God, the one who desires a personal relationship with each of us. And my Lord means Yahweh, like King of Kings. Now, Jesus' name It's from Joshua, which means Yahweh saved. There's so many kind of layers that you can read into this. But basically, Jesus proved he's raised from the dead. And Thomas like, you are the Messiah. I believe it. You are my Lord, and you are my God. Now, I was thinking as I was preparing this, why wouldn't they have just believed that Jesus could have raised himself from the dead? Like a week earlier, he did it with Lazarus. And he's been giving them enough kind of hints, very specific hints, kind of like what I get just before my anniversary date. And it's really easy to understand. But why wouldn't they believe he could resurrect himself? And I thought, actually, because he's dead. So it's one thing if you have a twin and you're doing some kind of trick. It's one thing to actually speak with authority and bring someone back to life. It's a whole different level when you're dead yourself and then you bring yourself back to life. Like, what kind of power is that? And so he was doubting, and then he sees, like, oh, my goodness. Like, you brought yourself back from the dead. My Lord and my God. It's like astonishment and praise. And then we look at the purpose of this, verse 31. Of verse 30 and 31, this is kind of like an addendum to the resurrected Christ. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in the book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus revealed himself for a purpose. John recorded the details for a purpose. And it's that each person has the opportunity to say to Jesus, my Lord 
and my God. It's like a surrendering in amazement to God. Now, 16 years ago, before I came to Christ, as a really deeply cynical person, having lived in the world long enough, if something was too good to be true, it's because it was. And you'd be an idiot to think otherwise. When I heard the gospel, I thought, that's too good to be true. Really? This God will forgive everything I've done and wants me to live for him and be his ambassador? That's kind of too good to be true. When you've sinned as much as I had done, you still have nothing to lose. So I prayed for Jesus to come into my life. And as I had this conversion experience, there was the most, oh my goodness, this is real. And I learned to flip my thinking upside down. Not, it's too good to be true, but it's so good it's true. And as we hear the gospel, it sounds too good to be true, but I want to promise you it's so good it's true. Thomas had this imagination of who Jesus was, this expectation that he held closely in his hand. And when he died on the cross, it's almost like Thomas's hand was forced open. This thing he valued and treasured was taken away. It's the same when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. We think, what's going to happen to my personality? What's going to happen to all of my freedom? What's going to happen to all of my relationships? And we really don't want God to prize open our fingers. But what Thomas found out, and what each of us find out if we put our faith and trust in Christ, God takes away from us because he has so much more to give us. Like Thomas received Jesus as his Lord and as his God. There was a fullness of relationship that we can't even begin to comprehend. The Apostle Paul later on in Scripture says, like, I count everything as nothing just to know the resurrected Christ and what that means. Sixteen years into the Christian faith, I tell you, I have not regretted any of it. There were times when I thought, God, what are you doing? And enough time passes and you get a vague understanding of why he did what he did. But I promise you, if you haven't yet put your trust in Christ, if you haven't surrendered your life to him, if you still think that we can save ourselves through good works, friends, we can't. And it's not because God wants us to feel bad about ourselves. It's because he died himself so the whole world could be forgiven. And Jesus is a king who serves others. When you serve regularly, you actually find out it's a joy. It's completely counterintuitive. But when you build Christ's kingdom, you are serving him. You are no longer serving yourself. But I promise you, it's worth it. Life to the full as you've never known it. Jesus says it's almost like you have eternal life now. Even when Lazarus died, he said, no, no, he's just sleeping. As Jesus looks at those believers who have died in Sri Lanka this morning, he now knows what's on the other side of that. We see the horror and the carnage. It would never, ever seem worth it. But Jesus knows there are people there who already have the fullness of eternal life, and they'll have it in the life to come. When Jesus comes into the room, he says both times, peace be with you. The word peace means shalom. Shalom uh, is kind of uh, harmony. 
Heaven will be this eternal shalom, this eternal harmony in God's presence. When he's saying, peace be with you, he's saying to his disciples, I have made peace with God on your behalf. So before uh, priests would go into the holiest of holies, behind this big curtain in Jerusalem in the temple, and offer sacrifices to God, when Jesus died and that curtain is ripped in two, so is the barrier between us and God. So he is saying, peace be with you. Saying like, you have made peace with God through trusting in me. And I give you an opportunity to make peace with God as I pray now. Two different types of people will hear this prayer. I want you to hear it and respond in whatever way is appropriate for you. There'll be some people here who've never really surrendered their salvation to God. I'm thinking, you can't, maybe you can't forgive that. I'm going to pray that Christ would come in and be the Lord of your life. And at the end of the service, you'd like you to write your name. I would love to follow up with you. At your convenience and whenever you want, we'd love to help you grow in the kingdom. There's other ones of us. It's almost like working the 12 steps. We are all addicted to sin. We don't want to do it. We have this new life. The Apostle Paul says, but we still do it. Whatever it is that's causing deep gloom, despair, that we prayed for, after I read from Mark 15, I'm going to pray that God just puts his resurrection power in that. I'm going to ask the band to come up as I pray. Will you bow your heads as I close us? Father God, you know each person here. You know everything that has gone on in their lives. Father, if there's someone here who's not yet put their faith and trust in you, Lord, I pray that they would do that today. Lord, you gave your life as a ransom for many. Peter, your disciple, said, the righteous died for the unrighteous once for all. I pray that that person now, in the quietness of their head, in the deep recesses of their heart and soul, would ask for you to save them. Say, Jesus, I'm sorry I have sinned. Please forgive me. Come into my life. I want to live for you now. And Jesus, you say, all who ask, you'll answer. All who seek, they will find. I pray that reality over them. And then, Lord, as the old self has died, for those who have been in the faith longer, we know it says in, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. At certain points, it seems like our old self is trying to resurrect. And we are addicted to things we don't want to be addicted to. We have given up on things you don't want us to give up on. I pray that your resurrection power will break in. Lord, it's like letting go of the monkey bars as a toddler in a playground. Help us to let go and trust that you will catch us with each of these strongholds in our life. And Father, fill us with joy that the best the devil could do, you rose from the grave, triumphant and victorious. It's almost like, is that the best you can do? The very worst moment potentially in human history becomes a decisive moment. May we, as we go out this week, 
have that picture of you in mind, the triumphant king, the Lord of lords, the king of the universe. And your favor and your spirit live in us. In Jesus' name, amen.